messages that are difficult. And years ago, I think my wife showed this to me, and I, I, I like first to read it every year because this is what I really want you to hear from Grace Baptist in regards to, to the way we feel about celebrating Mother's Day. To those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate with you. And to those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badges of food stains, we, we appreciate you. To those who experience loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes and prods and tears and disappointment, we walk with you too. Forgive us when we say foolish things. We don't mean to make this harder than it is. To those of you who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year, we grieve with you. To those who've experienced abuse at the hands of your own mother, we want to acknowledge that experience. To those who've lived through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we are all better for having you in our midst. To those who have aborted children, we remember both them and you on this day. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering your own children, we mourn that life has not turned out the way you longed it to be, the way you long for it to be. To those who step parent, we walk with you on these complex paths. To those who envisioned lavishing love on grandchildren, and yet that dream is not to be, at least not yet, we grieve with you. To those who will have emptier nests this upcoming year, we grieve and rejoice with you. <laughs> to those who place children up for adoption, we commend you for your selflessness and remember how you, help, how you hold that child in your heart. And to those who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprising, we anticipate with you. This Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have real warriors in our midst. We, we remember you, we are blessed by you, and we are thankful for you. Let's pray today. God, we are, are thankful for these women who model uh, so much of the heart of God uh, for his children. And we are thankful uh, for the love that we see within our community. We do pray for those who grieve and struggle on a day like today. And, and we thank you, God, that you came to bring us into one huge family, your family. And we pray that we as a church could live together as that family today. We thank you for the mothers here. We bless them and, and, and ask that you would continue to bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing on in our series uh, on, on the mission of God, working our way through the book of Hebrews. You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Um, the, the theme has been Jesus is greater than. The writer of the Hebrews is saying over and over to these Jewish Christians who are reading this text uh, that Jesus is greater than all these things that you run to uh, for comfort, than you run to for security, that you run to because you've known them your whole life. Uh, one of the things we realize about this text is that as you read through, you'll see that the people getting it are suffering. They're, they're struggling. They're having persecution. And in those moments, we want to hold on to something. And they're reaching back to hold on to things 
that, that have been meaningful to them in their past. We talked about that last week where Jesus was greater than angels. There's these things that have impacted us spiritually that have made a difference for us. And yet we, we don't want to hold on to those as much as we want to hold on to Jesus, who's greater than all that. Uh, I, I laugh because in those moments of difficulty, we like those tangible things. I read the story again this week about a boy, it must have been back in Saskatchewan because they had a root cellar years ago, and his mom said, <clears throat> I need you to go get some potatoes out of the root cellar. Well, he didn't like it because it was dark down there and scary and cold. And so he said, Mom, I'm scared to go down there. And she decided this was a great time, you mothers will appreciate this, to reinforce the Sunday school lesson. And she said, don't you know that Jesus is with you all the time? And he said, Jesus is in the root cellar? And she said, yeah. So he went and he opened the door. He said, Jesus, can you throw me up a few potatoes? <laughs> That's the way we are when we're scared. We want that tangible thing to hold on to. We don't like this Jesus that we can't necessarily see, but the writer of Hebrews keeps saying Jesus is greater than all those things that you've been holding on to. There's something deeper and more powerful. We're going to read chapter 3 and 4. Now, once again, the text is a bit complicated and hard to follow. Don't be discouraged. It's because there's a lot of references to Old Testament ideas and Old Testament things that the Jews would have had embedded in their minds throughout their history. Some of you may grasp them, some of you may not, but just follow along and then we'll, we'll work our way through it. Chapter 3, verse 1, down to the end of verse, chapter 4. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That's why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray. They've not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they that heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we've also had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, 
Just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. You see how it gets a little complicated? It still remains that some will enter that rest, that those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Now you'll see next week, as Jake launches into chapter 5, 6, and 7, that the end of chapter 4 really ties in with chapter 5, but I, I stole it. I wanted to first crack at it because it does bridge from what we're talking about today into the next part. But I think it's pretty clear, at least from the first part of chapter 3, the one thing that is clear in that passage is the writer is saying, Jesus is greater than who? Moses, right? Did you get that? Jesus is greater than Moses. And, and he, he talks about that, and we think, well, what we know that, duh, Jesus is greater than Moses. But he, he's, he's amplifying it by telling a story from the history of the Jews, and it's not the most favorable picture. It's back when the Jews were going to enter into the promised land. They had left, they had traveled around and gotten to the edge of the promised land, and Moses said, God is giving you this land. And you remember, they didn't go in. They were too scared to go in, right? And so... What, what the writer here is saying is, you know, Jesus is greater than that guy, Moses, who's, who was your great leader of the Jews, who was the great leader throughout the, the time in the desert. Jesus is greater. And he says, Moses is in, but Jesus is over. I really wanted to call this, Moses is faithful in the house, but I couldn't do that. I thought that's the way you say in the house. I thought that would be really cool. And I thought that section would really like it, especially, but... but what, what he talks about, he says, Moses is faithful in God's house, but Jesus is actually over God's house. He's a whole different level. In, in, in our own world, the writer might have said something like, Moses was a faithful renter. Uh, I remember I was so surprised because I would obviously never owned a house, but we were renting in, back when we lived in Coquitlam. And when we finally bought a house, I remember our landlord was so sad that we were moving and we were shocked by that. And I thought, what's the big deal? But now that I've grown in the ways of the world, I realize we paid our rent on time and, and we cut our grass. And for our landlord, that was like the ideal renter because he had dealt with, so, you know, and you see that. Well, he's, 
what he's saying here in this passage is Moses was a faithful renter. He did what needed to be done. But Jesus is the one that actually built and owns the entire house. He's bigger. And as I said last week, every section of Hebrews that does these comparisons has a warning. And, and then the guy, because he said Jesus is greater than Moses, he gives a warning from the backstory. Now that term backstory, some of you may not know, but writers, novelists, or movie script writers have a backstory for their characters. They make up something in their head that lets their character be a certain way. It's his history. And this is, a, this is a warning from Israel's true backstory. And he goes back to talk about what happened when they were just on the edge of the promised land back in Numbers 13. You remember, they had traveled. This was not after the 40 years. They had traveled all the way through. They get to the edge of the promised land. They send the spies in. And the spies come and see the land. And then they come back out. And in Numbers 13, it says, they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Now, when I was a kid, I really thought that meant there was milk in the rivers. That's a, that's a descriptive. You can take the Bible literally and not think there was milk and honey flowing. It's a descriptive passage. Here, it, here is its fruit. The people, and they, they showed them these grapes. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak, who was a giant, there. And then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. Caleb remembered that God had said, I'm giving you this land. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. That's the first example of fake news in the Bible, right there. <laughs> What's it? We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. You see, God had promised them the land. He had said, I'm going to take you there. I'm going to take you in. It's going to be your land. But they decided no. And the writer quotes Psalm 95, where David is actually telling this story in verses 7 to 11. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did back in the days of the rebellion. And they wandered for 40 days in the desert, seeing what God had done, but re realizing that they had resisted what he had promised them. They'd hardened their hearts and refused to enter the land. And it says, and they never entered the rest that God had for them. And the point is, Moses wasn't listened to. The writer's saying, Jesus is even greater than Moses. Remember, he started the whole book by saying, in the past, God spoke through the prophets. But more recently, he has spoken to us through his son. And so what he does is he moves from the backstory to our story. And he says, they didn't listen to Moses. Jesus is way greater than Moses. Make sure when you hear what Jesus says, you do not refuse to hear it. And... and he says that in, in, in verse 12, right? See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful or unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Remember, they're being persecuted. He's saying, I know it's tough right now. I know it looks like you're going to lose. I know it looks like you're suffering. But you've got to hold on. If they, they didn't listen to Moses, and look what they lost. And Jesus is so much greater than Moses. Look what he's calling you to. You don't want to lose what he's calling you to. You see, the, the writer cycles back in these two chapters to four basic things. Moses, hardness, belief, 
and rest. I know I'm making you work really hard with all those blanks. Moses' hardness, belief, and rest. But Hebrews 3 and 4 draw these lines between what happened in that former story and what's happening to us. And you've got to kind of make those connections. You know, because for us, it is scary sometimes to move forward and follow where God leads. He calls us into places that he's promised to lead us and care for us, but we're just not sure. Anybody ever felt just not sure? Okay, yeah, that's good, right? And, and the reality is, let me just say this, when you think you have everything that you need to move ahead, you're probably underestimating the situation, right? Lots of times we just live in this beautiful oblivion that we think we can take care of ourselves. It just takes a tragedy to remind us that every breath we have is a gift from God. But in this moment when it's difficult, we, we, we need to listen to what Jesus says. So the writer says, he starts talking about Moses and the historical rest. In, in verse 16, who am I talking about with this backstory? Who were they who heard and rebelled? Was it not all those that Moses led out of Egypt? That's who it's talking about. Those people that refused to enter the promised land. You know who it was. And in the case of those people who refused to enter, their unbelief led to hardness of their heart. We, we read that in Numbers again, but the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. They had, they had already decided that despite the fact God promised they're going to get this land, that we, we can't do that. And I, I like the end of that. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Their focus is totally on their ability there. And they've not chosen to believe God. It's hardened their heart, and they're refusing to go in. See, when we refuse to believe what God says in the Scripture, what He promises for us, our hearts get hardened by unbelief. And that hardened heart leads to exclusion from the promise rest. Now, I'm going to draw this connection, but I want to look. You've got to see what happened to them in verse 11 of chapter 3. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And down again in verse 18. And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? See, this is the back story. What happened was they refused to believe the promise of God. And so they were hardened, which excluded them from the rest that God had promised. Now, let's draw the parallel they didn't listen to Moses, but we're being called to listen to Jesus. Let's look at Jesus and the rest for us today. What's he talking? Because that's in chapter 4, and that's where it gets all complicated. There's a bunch of different days, and the promise of the rest still stands, and it's kind of hard to follow. Um, what he's saying there, verse 1, he says, since the, since the promise of entering his rest still stands. He's saying they didn't enter it back then, so it must still be available. And in fact, he says, when David wrote about it in the Psalms, David gave it a name and he called it today. You know, today is today. Sometimes we read this rest and we're only thinking about the future. And I don't think it's just talking about the future and when we go to be with God when we die in heaven. I don't think that's what it's, I think it's alluding to that. But I also think it's very clear that there is a rest for the people of God that's available right now. If we will not harden our hearts but believe what God has said. Because over and over in verse 1 to 9, we're told that belief leads to rest. 
That's the one thing that's clear in the passage. If the other stuff is that if people will trust what God has said to them, it will lead to rest. And, and he says in verse 9, there then remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now he has to throw Sabbath in there. First it was rest and now it's Sabbath rest. Well, he's, he's leaning back to verse 4 of chapter 4. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And he's saying, we have that kind of rest offered to us. Look at verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There is a rest where you rest from your works. For anyone, it says in verse 10, who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Now, doesn't that sound good? Let me just, the older I get, the better rest sounds. Can anybody identify with that? Right? I used to, you know, when I was young, I would think, what am I doing tonight? And then it moves to, I hope I don't have anything to do tonight. And now it's like, oh, man, I got something to do. What? We, 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 we learn as we get older the beauty of rest because we get tired. And, and no more, that's one thing about our calendar, but it's another thing when it's us trying to do the right thing. How many of you have tried so hard to do the right thing and have still failed? Right? How many of you would like to be able to rest from trying to do the right thing? From that constant, many of you, next week in Sunday school, Kira's going to talk about a thing she calls the inner critic. How many of you have that little voice in your head that's always sniping at you about what you haven't done? How many of you would like to just, you know, put some duct tape across that thing's mouth and be able to rest from this labor of always having to do. Well, it sounds so good. There's a Sabbath rest for the people of God. If you'll just believe God, you can enter that rest. But then you read the next verse, 411, and it gets a little confusing. Let us therefore do what? Make every effort. Wait, that sounds like not resting to me to enter that rest. So let's work so hard we can enter that rest. Does that, sound, that, that, does that unsettle anybody else? Yeah, I'm trying to work so hard to enter that rest, but this working so hard is not very restful for me. How does resting from our works square with making every effort to believe? How do, how do I do that? How do, how do I make every effort to enter that rest? Because believing will help me enter that rest. But, but I want to rest right now. How do, how do those two work together? There's a tension it reminds me of a conversation that Jesus had with the, with the Pharisees back in John chapter 6. They asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? That's what we ask. How do I do what needs to be done? And Jesus says this, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. Now, there, there's a real powerful thing going on here. The work of God is to believe. And I think there's there's something that we don't necessarily expect going on in this passage. And I think we make every effort to believe, which enables us to rest. We'll get there. Because unbelief leads to hardness that excludes us from rest. The key is we want to make every effort to believe so that we can rest. And then the question I want to spend the rest of the time on is, how do we, spend, how, how do we make every effort in keeping our heart soft. If, if he says, do not harden your heart, which he does say three times in that passage, and if we're to make every effort to believe so that our hearts don't harden, how exactly do we do that? What does it look like? 
this, this counterintuitive thing. And then if you really look at it, what's weird to me about this passage is he's talking about rest and rest and make every effort to enter that rest and believe. And then he goes into this thing about scripture. And then he says, scripture just cuts you wide open and it lays you bare. And then he ends with this priest. How does that all fit together? Well, let me let me tell you, I want to talk about at the end just some ways to keep your heart soft, which is what I think he means by making every effort to believe. And the best image I have to describe that, it once again, goes back to the way God talked to the prophets. Back in Jeremiah 18, he tells Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house. And Jeremiah goes down, he sees this potter who's making a pot, and he makes it, and then he decides to change what he wants to make, so he collapses it in, and he remakes it into something totally different. And God says, don't I have the right to make of the clay whatever I want? And, and Paul picks that up in Romans 9, 21. Doesn't the potter have the right to do whatever he wants with his clay? There's, there's, there's an image in that that really explains to, I think, to me, and hopefully to you, what it means to make every effort to believe. I want to show you a video, and I'm going to quiz you on it afterwards, so watch it closely. You won't believe how many times I had to do this before I could get it right. <laughs> Just kidding. That wasn't me. What? I, I wanna, here's my question. He did something 11 times during that one-minute video clip. What did he do? He wet the clay, right? Dips a little water, puts it in there. Dips a little water, puts it in there. And if you're a potter, you realize that clay does not form itself very well unless it's moist. And, and one of the things I think that helps me in this image is to realize I cannot shape my own pot. God is the one that shapes me. He makes me into what he wants me to be. But you know what I can do is I can make every effort to keep my clay moist so that when his hand touches me, he can shape me any way he wants. And I think that's what he's talking about when he says, don't harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden. Stay moist, stay soft. And there's some things in the text and some things in the scripture that I think help us. The first is focus our thoughts on Jesus. The whole text starts out, therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and priest. Now, let me tell you what that includes, but isn't fully. That doesn't just mean thinking about him or learning about him. It doesn't mean knowing all the Bible stories. I mean, that's a part of it. But, but when we fix our mind on something, it's something that we live with all the time. I, I can tell you, this is so sad that I have to admit this to you, but it's confession time. One of my greatest struggles in prayer 
is that I keep dreaming up basketball plays. I know, it's horrible. It's horrible. But I'll be focused on God, and all of a sudden, and maybe it's an idol, and maybe, I don't know, maybe God's saying something to me through that. Maybe God likes basketball too. Thank you, Carrie, for supporting my addiction. My point is this. I have my mind on basketball. I, it's just there. I, it's, it's present with me because I love it. And what, I, what I'm hoping in my life is that I can continue to focus my thoughts on Jesus in the same way, that it's a relationship with him, that it's being aware of his presence who's with me every single moment. And that, that's one of the things we have to do. We have to begin to see our life as being lived in the presence of Jesus. In, in Sunday school next month, we're going to talk about prayer, and specifically prayer as a relational thing. That's what our next spiritual formation retreat is about, is that how do we actually not just fix our thoughts on Jesus like cognitively thinking about him, but how do we be so consumed by who he is that he's just what pops into our mind? that we're aware of his presence on a growing and daily basis. Now, part of that is, is these, these practices, things that we do to keep the clay moist. But first of all, I think the first step we take in that is saying, Jesus, I want to be there. I always talk about the want to, want to. I may not want to something, but I want to want to that. And I think sometimes with Jesus, we just say, I want to, fix, I want to focus my thoughts on you. I want to be aware of your presence every day. Teach me how to do that. That's the first start to it. Part of that is this second thing, admitting the truth about yourself. I, I love it that it goes into this passage about the Bible and, and, and the Scripture. Be, believe what the Bible says to be true in 4.12. For the Word of God, I remember he's talking about Jesus as the Word of God too. But we always see this as just the Bible. The Word of God, this person of Jesus, by focusing your thoughts on him, living in relationship with him through the text and through a relationship, it, it, it will cut you open and remake you. It will, it's so sharp that it will divide even the thoughts and the attitudes, the motives of the heart. And, and sometimes one of the ways we keep the clay moist, one of the ways we keep our hearts soft is just by acknowledging the truth of what Jesus says about us. Admitting the truth. See, in, in their backstory, their Bible, the, the Word of God said, I'm going to give you this land. But what they saw was people that made us look like grasshoppers. And they had a choice in that moment to acknowledge the truth that God is going to give them the land or to focus on what they thought they saw. We're grasshoppers. And, and in our lives, we do the same thing. We have a chance to believe what God has said, that he loves us, that he gave his life for us, that he forgives us, that he will transform us, that he will do what is best for us. Well, it doesn't look what, like what's best, God. We, part of the way we focus our thoughts on Jesus is to consciously, continually admit the truth of what he says, even if we don't see it visibly. We saw that last week. You know, even though right now we don't see everything as under subject to Jesus or subject to him, we do see Jesus. And Jesus is this promise that we hold that says it's going to work out even though it looks like we're going over a cliff backwards. Somehow what he has said, I'm going to admit the truth to myself. Now, as we do that, we, we realize our own failure. 
we realize, oh man, I'm so prone to see myself as the grasshopper. I'm so prone to look at the circumstances and just fixate on them instead of listening to what Jesus says is true about me. That I'm a holy beloved child of God, that I'm forgiven, that I'm drawn to him, that despite my failures, that he welcomes me into his family. We, we, we get so focused on the other stuff, we acknowledge our failures. And part of that is we have to even admit the truth about our failures. We have to admit our own sin. That's one of the, we start most of our worship services. We're going to work more toward that, toward, with a period of confession, a song that gives us the ability to say, I have failed, because that's part of the truth we need to acknowledge. See, one of the things, and this is the weird part of the passage, is chapter 4, verse 13. Just let me read it to you. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Doesn't that make you feel restful? Let me read it again. Think think how restful this makes you feel. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare. The Greek for that word literally means stripped naked. Everything is stripped naked before the eyes of whom, him whom we must give account. How many of you, if you were sitting in this room right now with all of us, stripped naked would feel restful? None of us would, right? Oh, there's the bubbas. Yeah, I, that's great. That's, that's true freedom, right? Um, I would not feel restful in that moment. None of us would. So why put that, why put that in a passage about rest? about keeping your heart soft to the one who's, who can splice it open and divide all your motives. Why put that there? Why put that every, he knows everything about, why put, because that is the whole point. He knows everything about you. He's seen you spiritually totally naked. He knows fully who you are. And what he wants you to do is be able to let go of that and believe the truth about what he says, despite what you feel, despite what you know about yourself. He wants us to embrace the stripping away. To walk right into that spot where we failed over and over and over and we just don't even want to think about it, we want to avoid it, and to say to God, I failed again, it's all I got, here it is. And in that moment for him to say, you are my holy, beloved child. And the cross has covered that. Now see, that, something happens in that moment when you admit the truth, when you're laid bare, and you realize that God still loves you, that begins to transform something in you. That enables you to to keep moving toward Jesus. That's why it says in in verse 14 of of chapter 4, therefore, since we have such a great high priest, since we have somebody who loves us despite all that we've done, who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, And then he goes on down in verse 16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. That's how we keep our hearts soft, is by admitting the truth about ourselves, admitting the truth about what God says, and then walking to Jesus with it all. Let us boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. Admit the truth about ourselves. Embrace the stripping away. And then rest in the love that he has for us. So Carrie in Sunday school has started both weeks, the past two weeks, with Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders 
and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the, pi the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. You see, that's the whole point. <laughs> and that's where we come back to making every effort to believe and how it's restful. Because when you've admitted every single thing about you and you've held it up to the throne of grace and Jesus still loves you, all of a sudden those things don't appeal to you anymore. When you've been loved despite your brokenness, there is something created in you that doesn't want to be broken anymore. And that's, that's what Paul talks about. He calls, he says we should rest in the obedience that comes from faith. Rest in the obedience that comes from faith. His phrase in Romans 1.5, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And once again, at the end of the book in, in Romans 16, 25 down to 27, he says, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. That is how we make every effort to believe, not by trying harder to fix ourselves, not by trying harder to keep all the rules, but by admitting our brokenness to a God who loves us, who then begins to say, I love you. Why would you do that? And we think, why would I do that? I lo he loves me like I am. Why would I keep doing that? And it becomes less and less of a draw. That's the rest that comes in. As you trust that what God says is true, your actions become less and less powerful in your life. And you can rest in the love he has for you which makes all those other things you've gone to looking for love way less appealing. Two minutes to recap this whole sermon. I'm over time, so I'm going to give it in two, less than two, hopefully. Jesus is greater than Moses. And here's how. Moses told the people, God is giving you the land. And they saw their stronger people there. It didn't match up with their experience. They refused to believe God. Their hearts were hardened, and they lost their rest. And Jesus says to you, God loves you as you are. He forgives you. He welcomes you into his family. And you have three options. You probably have more than that, but you have three in my sermon, so just stick with me on that. You have three options. You can see the darkness and your sin in your own life. And you think, God can't deal with that. That's just too much. Which is arrogance and pride, by the way. God can't deal with that sin, it's too much, and so you, your heart becomes hard because you unbelief, you don't believe what he said is true, and you lose your rest. That's one option. Another one is you can hide the darkness and sin in your own life <laughs> and just ignore it and forget it and get so busy doing other things for God, not admit the truth and not embrace the stripping away that he wants to do, and guess what? Your heart becomes hard because you've denied the truth, and you lose your rest. Or you can fix Jesus as the central point around everything that reality revolves around. You can admit the truth about your life as the Bible makes it clear to you as you're walking with Jesus. Admit You can embrace the stripping away knowing that God does lay you bare and he still loves what he sees there. And then you can keep moving toward Jesus to that throne of grace boldly because he has everything that you need and allow him and that trust in him to actually transform you and make you a different person. To rest as you're transformed. It's, it's your call. You can either fight against the love of God your whole life or you can surrender to it. You know, far too often we say, oh, the unbelievers, they're out there. 
We struggle with unbelief about what God has said is true once we come to Jesus at the cross. He has said, in him you are the righteousness of Christ. He has said, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And and if we don't believe that, we are unbelievers to some degree, and it hardens our heart and takes away our rest. We have to begin to receive actually what God has done for us. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Moses was great, but Moses only pointed to Jesus. And Jesus was the one that would lay you open, strip you bare, and love you in spite of what was there. And if you can be honest about that and believe God loves you despite your sin, you can enter a rest of transformation where you'll actually grow and be more like Jesus and be resting in the mercy and the grace the whole time. Let's pray. God, we, we hopefully can think about this as a concept, but it just seems so far from our practical experience. We want to rest in your grace. And so we just ask that you would help us to do that, that we could center our lives on you, that we could seek your presence and an awareness of you with us, that we could believe what you have said, that the cross really did defeat sin and death forever, and that your resurrection brought life, and that we can experience life that will transform us, not because we're so good or we work so hard, but because we receive the gift that you're giving to us. Help us to believe that what you've said is true. Help us to keep our hearts soft and open to where you're leading and where you're calling. Help us to boldly approach the throne of grace, knowing that you have everything that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. My prayer this week is that you could believe this, Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. I really think if you believe that, that you will live differently. And some people say, Jeff, you're just too much on grace. It's too easy. If people just think they have a blank check and there's no condemnation in Jesus, they'll do whatever they want. I don't think so. I think if you get the love that says to you, in Christ there is no condemnation, no matter what you've done, he doesn't look at you as guilty. If you get that, if you begin to experience that, if you begin to know the love of God, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you, you begin to taste that, you're going to live differently. And that is going to be an obedience that comes not from knowing the right thing to do, but from faith that what he has said is true, which is rest. That's my prayer for you. Amen.